Section 45 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 27, 1599-1603, Part 1. The death in September 1598 of Philip II, and the succession of the feeble Philip III, under whom the Spanish monarchy advanced with accelerated steps towards its decline, had finally released the Queen from all apprehensions of foreign invasion, and left her at liberty to turn her whole attention to the pacification of Ireland. The state of that island was in every respect deplorable. The whole province of Ulster in open rebellion under Tyrone. The rest of the country only waiting for the succours from the Pope and the King of Spain, which the credulous natives were still taught to expect, to join openly in the revolt and in the meantime reduced to such a state of despair by innumerable oppressions and by the rumour of further severities meditated by the queen of england that it seemed prepared to oppose the most obstinate resistance to every measure of government in what manner and by whom this wretched province should be brought back to its allegiance had been the subject of frequent and earnest debates in the privy council in which essex had vehemently reprobated the conduct of former governors in wasting time on inferior objects instead of first undertaking the reduction of tyrone and appears to have spared no pains to impress the queen with an opinion of the superior justness of his own views of the subject elizabeth believed and with reason that she discovered in lord montjoy talents not unequal to the arduous office of lord deputy at so critical a juncture but when the greater part of her council appeared to concur in the choice essex insinuated a variety of objections that the experience of montjoy in military affairs was small that neither in the Low Countries nor in Bretagne, where he had served, had he attained to any principal or independent command, that his retainers were few or none, his purse inadequately furnished for the first expenses of so high an appointment, and that he was too much addicted to a sedentary and studious life. By this artful enumeration of the deficiencies of Montjoy, he was clearly understood to intimate his own superior fitness for the office. The Queen, notwithstanding certain suspicions, which had been infused into her of danger in committing to Essex the command of an army, and notwithstanding the unwillingness which she still felt to deprive herself of his presence, appears to have adopted with eagerness this suggestion of her favourite, for she held in high estimation both his talents and his good fortune. Montjoy promptly retired from a competition in which he must be unsuccessful. The adherents of the Earl, except a few of the more sagacious, eagerly forwarded his appointment with imprudent eulogiums of his valour and his genius, and still more imprudent anticipations of his certain and complete success. His enemies, desirous of his absence and hopeful of his failure, concurred with no less zeal in the promotion of his wishes, and he soon found himself importuned on every side to accept the command. But it now became his part to make objections. Perhaps he began to open his eyes to the difficulties to be confronted in Ireland perhaps he penetrated too late the designs and expectations of his adversaries at home perhaps for his character was not free from artifice he chose by a display of reluctance to enhance in the eyes of his sovereigns the merit of his final acquiescence however this might be the difficulties which he raised kept the business for some time in suspense secretary cecil observed in a letter of december fourth fifteen ninety eight that quote, the opinion of the earl's going to ireland had some stop by reason of his lordship's indisposition to it except with some such conditions as were disagreeable to her majesty's mind quote, although he added the cup will hardly pass from him in regard of his worth and fortune but if it do my lord montjoy is named it was in the midst of the debates and contentions on this matter that essex endeavoured to work upon the feelings of elizabeth by the following romantic but eloquent address 
Quote, to the queen. From a mind delighting in sorrow, from spirits wasted with passion, from a heart torn in pieces with care, grief, and travel, from a man that hateth himself and all things else that keep him alive, what service can your majesty expect? since any service past deserves no more than banishment and proscription to the cursedest of all islands. It is your rebel's pride and succession must give me leave to ransom myself out of this hateful prison, out of my loathed body, which, if it happeneth so, your majesty shall have no cause to mislike the fashion of my death, since the course of my life could never please you. Happy could he finish forth his fate in some unhaunted desert most obscure from all society, from love and hate of worldly folk, than should he sleep secure then wake again and yield god ever praise content with hips and haws and brambleberry in contemplation passing out his days and change of holy thoughts to make him merry who when he dies his tomb may be a bush where harmless robin dwells with gentle thrush your majesty's exiled servant robert essex it seems also to have been at this juncture that on some public occasion he bore a plain morning shield with the words par nulla figura dolori a very sensible and friendly letter addressed to harrington by his relation robert markham may serve to throw additional light on the situation and sentiments of essex and on the state of court parties mr robert markham to john harrington esq notwithstanding the perilous state of our times i shall not fail to give you such intelligence and advices of our matters here as may tend to your use and benefit we have gotten good account of some matters and as i shall find some safe conduct for bearing them to you it may from time to time happen that I send tidings of our courtly concerns. Since your departure from hence, you have been spoken of, and with no ill-will, both by the nobles and the queen herself. Your book is almost forgiven, and I may say forgotten, but not for its lack of wit or satire. Those whom you feared most are now bosoming themselves in the queen's grace, and though her highness signified displeasure in outward sort, yet did she like the marrow of your book. Your great enemy, Sir James, did once mention the star-chamber, but your good esteem in better minds outdid his endeavours, and all is silent again. The Queen is minded to take you to her favour, but she sweareth that she believes you will make epigrams and write misacmos again on her and all the court. She hath been heard to say that merry poet her godson must not come to Greenwich till he hath grown sober, and leaveth the ladies' sports and frolics. She did conceive much disquiet on being told you had aimed a shaft at Leicester, I wish you knew the author of that ill deed. I would not be in his best jerkin for a thousand marks. You yet stand well in her highness's love, and I hear you are to go to Ireland with the Lieutenant Essex. If so, mark my counsel in this matter. I doubt not your valour nor your labour, but that uncovered honesty will mar your fortunes. Observe the man who commandeth, and yet is commanded himself. He goeth not forth to serve the Queen's realm, but to humour his own revenge. Be heedful of your bearings, speak not your mind to all you meet. I tell you I have ground for my caution. Essex hath enemies. He hath friends, too. Now there are two or three of Montjoy's kindred sent out in your army. They are to report all your conduct to us at home. As you love yourself, the Queen, and me, discover not these matters. If I did not love you, they had never been told. High concerns deserve high attention. You are to take account of all that passes in your expedition, and keep journal thereof, unknown to any in the company. This will be expected of you. I have reasons to give for this order." if the lord deputy performs in the field what he hath promised in the council all will be well but though the queen hath granted forgiveness for his late demeanour in her presence we know not what to think hereof she hath in all outward semblance placed confidence in the man who so lately sought other treatment at her hands 
we do sometime think one way and sometime another what betideth the lord deputy is known to him only who knoweth all but when a man hath so many showing friends and so many unshowing enemies who learneth his end here below i say do not you meddle in any sort nor give your jesting too freely among those you know not obey the lord deputy in all things but give not your opinion it may be heard in england though you obey yet seem not to advise in any one point your obeisance may be and must be construed well but your counsel may be ill thought of if any bad business follow you have now a secret from one that wishes you all welfare and honour i know there are overlookers set on you all so god direct your discretion sir william knowles is not well pleased the queen is not well pleased the lord deputy may be pleased now but i sore fear what may happen hereafter the heart of man lieth close hid oft time men do not carry it in their hand nor should they do so that wish to thrive in these times and in these places i say this that your own honesty may not show itself too much and turn to your own ill favour stifle your understanding as much as may be mind your books and make your jests but take heed who they light on my love hath overcome almost my confidence and trust which my truth and place demandeth i have said too much for one in my dependent occupation and yet too little for a friend and kinsman who putteth himself to this hard trial for your advantage you have difficult matters to encounter beside tyrone and the rebels there is little heed to be had to show of affection in state business i find this by those i discourse with daily and those too of the wiser sort if my lord treasurer had lived longer matters would go on surer he was our great pilot on whom all cast their eyes and sought their safety the queen's highness doth often speak of him in tears and turn aside when he is discoursed of nay even forbiddeth any mention to be made of his name in the council this i learn by some friends who are in good liking with my lord buckhurst my sister beareth this to you but doth not know what it containeth nor would i disclose my dealings to any woman in this sort for danger goeth abroad and silence is the safest armour etc such were the bodings of distant evil with which the more discerning contemplated the new and arduous enterprise in which the ambition of essex had engaged him in the meantime all things conspired to delude him into a false security and to augment that presumption which formed the most dangerous defect of his character all the obstacles which had delayed his appointment were gradually smoothed away the queen consented to invest him with powers far more ample than had ever been conferred on a lord deputy before all his requisitions of men and other supplies were complied with and an army of twenty thousand foot and thirteen hundred horse afterwards increased to two thousand a far larger force than ireland had yet beheld was placed at his disposal at parting the tenderness of the queen revived in full force and she dismissed him with expressions of regret and affection which as he afterwards professed to her had quote, pierced his very soul end quote. The people followed him with acclamations and blessings, and the flower of the nobility now, as in the Cadiz expedition, attended him with alacrity as volunteers. It was in the end of March 1599 that he embarked, and landing after a dangerous passage at Dublin, his first act was the appointment of his dear friend the Earl of Southampton to the office of General of the Horse, a step which he afterwards found abundant cause to repent an error of which consequences were much more pernicious to himself and fatal to the success of his undertaking was his abandoning his original resolution of marching immediately against tyrone and spending his first efforts in the suppression of a minor revolt in munster an attempt in which he encountered a resistance so much more formidable than he had anticipated and found himself so ill supported by his troops whom the nature of the service speedily disheartened that its results were by no means so brilliant as to strike terror into tyrone or the other insurgents what was still worse, 
almost four months were occupied in this service, and the forces returned sick, wearied, and incredibly reduced in number by various accidents. Learning that the Queen was much displeased at this expedition into Munster, Essex addressed a letter to the Privy Council, in which, after affirming that he had performed his part to the best of his abilities and judgment, he thus proceeded, quote, but as I said, and ever must say, I provided for this service a breastplate, and not a cuirass. That is, I am armed on the breast, but not on the back. I armed myself with confidence that rebels in so unjust a quarrel could not fight so well as we could in a good. Howbeit, if the rebels shall but once come to know that I am wounded on the back, not slightly, but to the heart, as I fear me they have too true and too apparent advertisement of this kind, then what will be their pride and the state's hazard your lordships in your wisdoms may easily discern." In a subsequent letter, the warmth of his friendship for Southampton breaks out in the following eloquent and forcible appeal, quote, But to leave this, and to come to that which I never looked I should have come to, I mean your lordship's letter touching the displacing of the Earl of Southampton. Your lordships say that Her Majesty thinketh it strange, and taketh it offensively, that I should appoint him general of the horse, seeing not only Her Majesty denied it when I moved it, but gave an express prohibition to any such choice. Surely, my lord, it shall be far from me to contest with your lordships, much less with her majesty. Howbeit, God and my own soul are my witnesses, that I had not in this nomination any disobedient or irreverent thought, that I never moved her majesty for the placing of any officer, my commission fully enabling me to make free choice of all officers and commanders of the army. I remember that her majesty in her privy chamber at Richmond, I only being with her, showed a dislike of his having any office, but my answer was that if Her Majesty would revoke my commission, I would cast both it and myself at Her Majesty's feet. But if it pleased Her Majesty that I should execute it, I must work with my own instruments, and from this profession and protestation I never varied, whereas if I had held myself barred from giving my Lord of Southampton place and reputation some way answerable to his degree and expense, there is no one, I think, doth imagine that I loved him so ill as to have brought him over. Therefore, if Her Majesty punished me with her displeasure for this choice, pena dolenda venit. And now, my lords, were now, as then it was, that I were to choose, or were there nothing in a new choice but my lord of Southampton's disgrace and my discomfort, I should easily be induced to displace him and to part with him. But when in obeying this command I must discourage all my friends, who now, seeing the days of my suffering draw near, follow me afar off, and are some of them tempted to renounce me when I must dismay the army, which already looks sadly as pitying both me and itself in this comfortless action, when I must encourage the rebels, who doubtless will think it time to hew upon a withering tree, and whose leaves they see beaten down, and the branches in part cut off, when I must disable myself for ever in the course of this service, the world now perceiving that I want either reason to judge of merit, or freedom to fight it, disgraces being there heaped, where, in my opinion, rewards are due. Give just grief, leave once to complain. O oh, miserable employment, and more miserable destiny of mine, that makes it impossible for me to please and serve Her Majesty at once! Was it treason in my Lord of Southampton to marry my poor kinswoman, that neither long imprisonment nor any punishment besides that hath been usual in like cases can satisfy and appease? Or will no kind of punishment be fit for him but that which punisheth, not him, but me, this army, and this poor country of Ireland? Shall I keep the country when the army breaks, or shall the army stand when all the volunteers leave it? or will any voluntary stay when those that have will and cause to follow are thus handled? No, my lords, they already ask passports, and that daily, etc. In spite of all this earnestness, in spite of the remaining affection of the queen for her favourite, she still persisted in requiring that he should displace his friend, 
and even chid him severely for having waited the result of his further representations and entreaties after once learning her pleasure on the point success in the main object of his expedition might still have procured him a triumph over his court enemies and a sweet reconciliation with his offended sovereign but fortune had no such favour in store for essex the necessity of quelling some rebels in leinster again impeded his march into ulster for which expedition he was obliged to solicit a further supply from england of two thousand foot which was immediately forwarded to him as if with the design of leaving him without excuse should he fail to reduce tyrone but by this time the season was so far advanced and the army so sickly that both the earl and the irish council were of opinion that nothing effectual could be done and at the first notice of his intended march great part of his forces deserted he nevertheless proceeded and in a few days during which a little skirmishing took place came in sight of the rebels main army considerably more numerous than his own tyrone however would not venture to give him battle but sent to request a parley this after some delay the lord deputy granted and a conference was held between them essex standing on the bank of a stream which separated the two hosts while the rebel sat on his horse in the middle of the water a truce was concluded to be renewed from six weeks to six weeks till terms of peace should be agreed on those proposed by tyrone containing several arrogant and unreasonable articles at a second meeting with the irish chief essex was attended by some of his principal officers but it was afterwards proved that previously to the first conference he had opened a very unwarrantable correspondence with this enemy of his queen and country who took upon himself to promise that if essex would come into his measures he would make him the greatest man in england during the whole of this time sharp letters were passing between elizabeth and her privy council and the earl and it is hard to say on which side the heaviest list of grievances was produced the queen remonstrated against his contemptuous disobedience of her orders and the waste and frivolous enterprises of the vast supplies of men and money which he had entrusted to her deputy for a specific and momentous object the earl in addition to his usual murmurings against the sinister suggestions of his enemies amongst whom he singled out by name raleigh and lord cobham found further grounds of complaint and alarm in the circumstance of her majesty's having caused some troops to be called out under the lord admiral on pretext of fears from the spaniard but really with a view of protecting her against certain designs imputed to himself and in her having granted to secretary cecil during his absence the office of master of the wards for which he was himself a suitor apprehensive lest by his longer delay her affection should be irrecoverably alienated from him by the discovery of his traitorous correspondence with tyrone he rashly resolved to risk yet another act of disobedience that of deserting without license and under its present accumulated circumstances of danger his important charge and hastening to throw himself at the feet of an exasperated but he flattered himself not inexorable mistress at one time he had even entertained the desperate and criminal design of carrying over with him a large part of his army for the purpose of intimidating his adversaries but being diverted from this scheme by the earl of southampton and sir christopher blount his stepfather he embarked with the attendance only of most of his household and a number of his favourite officers and arrived at the court which was then at nonsuch on michaelmas eve in the morning on alighting at the gate covered with mire and stained with travel as he was he hastened up the stairs passed through the presence and the privy chambers and never stopped till he reached the queen's bedchamber where he found her newly risen with her hair about her face he kneeled and kissed her hands and she in the agreeable surprise of beholding at her feet one whom she still loved received him with so kind an aspect and listened with such favour to his excuses that on leaving her after a private conference of some duration he appeared in high spirits and thanked god that though he had suffered many storms abroad he found a sweet calm at home 
he waited on her again as soon as he had changed his dress and after a second long and gracious conference was freely visited by all the lords ladies and gentlemen at court excepting the secretary and his party who appeared somewhat shy of him but all these fair appearances quickly vanished on revisiting the queen in the evening he found her much changed towards him she began to call him to account for his unauthorized return and the hazard to which he had committed all things in ireland and four privy councillors were appointed by her to examine him that night and hear his answers but by them nothing was concluded and the matter was referred to a full council summoned for the following day the earl being in the meantime commanded to keep his chamber notwithstanding the natural impetuosity of his temper essex now armed himself with patience and moderation and answered with great gravity and discretion to the charges brought against him which resolved themselves into the following articles quote, his contemptuous disobedience of her majesty's letters and will in returning his presumptuous letters written from time to time his proceedings in ireland contrary to the points resolved upon in england ere he went his rash manner of coming away from ireland his overbold going the day before to her majesty's presence to her bedchamber and his making of so many idle nights the council after hearing his defence remained a while in consultation and then made their report to her majesty who said she should take time to consider of his answers meanwhile the proceedings were kept very private and the earl continued a prisoner in his own apartment an open division now took place between the two great factions which had long divided the court in secret the earls of shrewsbury and nottingham lords thomas howard cobham and gray sir walter raleigh and sir george carew attended on the secretary while essex was followed by the earls of worcester and rutland lords montjoy rich lumley and henry howard the last of whom however was already suspected to be the traitor which he afterwards proved to the patron whom he professed to love to honour and almost to worship sir william knowles also joined the party of his nephew with many other knights and gentlemen and lord effingham though son to the earl of nottingham was often with him and quote, protested all service to him quote, it is a world to be here adds white and to see the humours of the place end quote. on october the second essex was commanded from court and committed to the lord keeper with whom he remained at york house at his departure from court few or none of his friends accompanied him quote, his lordship's sudden return out of ireland says white brings all sorts of knights captains officers and soldiers away from thence that this town is full of them to the great discontentment of her majesty that they are suffered to leave their charge but the most part of the gallants have quitted their commands places and companies not willing to stay there after him so that the disorder seems to be greater there than stands with the safety of that service harrington the wit and poet had the misfortune to be one of the threescore idle knights dubbed by the lord deputy during his short and inglorious reign and likewise one of the officers whom he selected to accompany him in his return and we may learn from two of his own letters written several years subsequently after what manner he was welcomed on his arrival by his royal godmother quote, sir john harrington to dr still the bishop of bath and wells sixteen o three my worthy lord i have lived to see that rebel tyrone brought to england courteously favoured honoured and well liked o my lord what is there which doth not prove the inconstancy of worldly matters how did i labour after that knave's destruction i was called from my home by her majesty's command adventured perils by sea and land endured toil was near starving ate horse-flesh at munster and all to quell that man who now smileth in peace at those that did hazard their lives to destroy him essex took me to ireland i had scant time to put on my boots i followed with good will and did return with the lord lieutenant to meet ill-will i did bear the frowns of her that sent me 
and were it not for her good liking, rather than my good deservings, I had been sore discountenanced indeed. I obeyed in going with the Earl to Ireland, and I obeyed in coming with him to England. But what did I encounter thereon? Not his wrath, but my gracious sovereign's ill-humour. What did I advantage? Why, truly a knighthood, which had been better bestowed by her that sent me, and better spared by him that gave it. I shall never put out of memory Her Majesty's displeasure. I entered her chamber, but she frowned and said, "'What, did the fool bring you too? Go back to your business.' In sooth, these words did sore hurt him that never heard such before. But heaven gave me more comfort in a day or two after. Her Majesty did please to ask me concerning our northern journeys, and I did so well quit me of the account that she favoured me with such discourse that the Earl himself had been well glad of. And now doth Tyrone dare us old commanders with his presence and protection.' etc. Quote, Sir John Harrington to Sir Robert Barkham, 1606. My good cousin, herewith you will have my journal, with our history during our march against the Irish rebels. I did not intend any eyes should have seen this discourse but my own children's. Yet, alas, it happened otherwise, for the Queen did so ask, and I may say, demand my account, that I could not withhold showing it, and I even now almost tremble to rehearse Her Highness's displeasure hereat. She swore by God's Son, we were all idle knaves, and the Lord Deputy worse, for wasting our time and her commands in such wise as my journal doth write of. I could have told Her Highness of such difficulties, straits, and annoyance, as did not appear therein to her eyes, nor, I found, could be brought to her ear, for her collar did outrun all reason, though I did meet it at a second hand. For what show she gave at first to my Lord Deputy at his return was far more grievous, as will appear in good time." I marvel to think what strange humours do conspire to patch up the natures of some minds. The elements do seem to strive which shall conquer and rise above the other. In good sooth our late queen did enfold them all together. I bless her memory for all her goodness to me and my family, and now will I show you what strange temperament she did sometimes put forth. Her mind was oft-times like the gentle air that cometh from the westerly point in a summer's morn. T'was sweet and refreshing to all around her. Her speech did win all affections, and her subjects did try to show all love to her commands. For she would say, her state did require her to command what she knew her people would willingly do from their own love to her. Herein did she show her wisdom fully. For who did choose to lose her confidence, or who would withhold a show of love and obedience when their sovereign said it was their own choice, and not her compulsion? Surely she did play well her tables to gain obedience thus without constraint. Again could she put forth such alterations when obedience was lacking as left no doubtings whose daughter she was. I say this was plain on the Lord Deputy's coming home when I did come into her presence. She chafed much, walked fastly to and fro, looked with discomposure in her visage, and I remember she catched my girdle when I kneeled to her and swore, By God's son I am no queen, that man is above me. Who gave him command to come here so soon? I did send him on other business. It was long before more gracious discourse did fall to my hearing, but I was then put out of my trouble, and bid go home. I did not stay to be bidden twice. If all the Irish rebels had been at my heels, I should not have made better speed, for I did now flee from one whom I both loved and feared, too." The fate of Essex remained long in suspense. While several little circumstances seemed to indicate the strength of Her Majesty's resentment against him, especially her denying, to the personal request of Lady Walsingham, permission for the earl to write to his countess her daughter, who was in childbed, and exceedingly troubled that she neither saw nor heard from her husband, and afterwards her refusing to allow his family physician access to him, though he was now so ill as to be attended by several other physicians, with whom, however, Dr. Brown was permitted to consult. 
at the same time it was given out that if he would beg his liberty for the purpose of going back to ireland it would be granted him but he appeared resolute never to return thither and professed a determination of leading henceforth a retired life in the country free from all participation in public affairs pamphlets were written on his case but immediately suppressed by authority and perhaps at the request of the earl himself whose behaviour at this time exhibited nothing but duty and submission his sister lady rich and lady southampton quitted essex house and went into the country because the resort of company to them had given offence he himself neither saw nor desired to see any one his very servants were afraid to meet in any place to make merry lest it might be ill taken Quote, lady scrope is only noted to stand firm to him for she endures much at her majesty's hands because she daily does all kind offices of love to the queen in his behalf she wears all black she mourns and is pensive and joys in nothing but in a solitary being alone and tis thought she says much that few would venture to say but herself this generous woman was daughter to the first lord hunsdon and nearly related both to the queen and to essex she was sister to the countess of nottingham who is believed to have acted so opposite a part about the middle of october strong hopes were entertained of the earl's enlargement but it was said that quote, he stood to have his liberty by the like warrant he was committed end quote. the secretary was pleased to express to him the satisfaction that he felt in seeing her majesty so well appeased by his demeanour and his own wish to promote his good and contentment the reasons which he had assigned for his conduct in ireland appeared to have satisfied the privy council and mollified the queen but her majesty characteristically declared that she would not bear the blame of his imprisonment and before she and her council could settle amongst them on whom it should be made to rest a new cause of exasperation arose tyrone in a letter to essex which was intercepted declared that he found it impossible to prevail on his confederates to observe the conditions of truce agreed upon between them and the queen relapsing into anger triumphantly asked if there did not now appear good cause for the earl's committal she immediately made known to lord montjoy her wish that he should undertake the government of ireland but the friendship of this nobleman to essex joined with a hope that the queen might be induced to liberate him by a necessity of again employing his talents in that country induced montjoy to excuse himself the council unanimously recommended to her majesty the enlargement of the prisoner but she angrily replied that such contempts as he had been guilty of ought to be openly punished they answered that by her sovereign power and the rigour of law such punishment might indeed be inflicted but that it would be inconsistent with her clemency and her honour she however caused heads of accusation to be drawn up against him all this time essex continued very sick and his high spirit condescended to supplications like the following quote, when the creature entereth into account with the creator it can never number in how many things it needs mercy or in how many it receives it but he that is best stored must still say da nobis hodie and he that hath showed most thankfulness must ask again quid retribuamus and i can no sooner finish this my first audit most dear and most admired sovereign but i come to consider how large a measure of his grace and how great a resemblance of his power god hath given you upon earth and how many ways he giveth occasion to you to exercise these divine offices upon us that are your vassals this confession best fitteth me of all men and this confession is most joyfully and most humbly now made by me of all times i acknowledge upon the knees of my heart your majesty's infinite goodness in granting my humble petition god who seeth all is witness how faithfully i do vow to dedicate the rest of my life next after my highest duty in obedience faith and zeal to your majesty without admitting any other worldly care and whatsoever your majesty resolveth to do with me i shall live and die your majesty's humblest vassal essex the earl abased himself in vain 
those courtiers who had formerly witnessed her majesty's tenderness and indulgence towards him now wondered at the violence of her resentment and somewhat of mystery still involves the motives of her conduct at one time she deferred his liberation quote, because she heard that some of his friends and followers should say he was wrongfully imprisoned end quote. and the french ambassador who spoke for him found her very short and bitter on that point soon after however on hearing that he continued very sick and was making his will she was surprised into some signs of pity and gave orders that a few of his friends should be admitted to visit him and that he should be allowed the liberty of the garden alarmed at these relentings raleigh to whose nature the basest court acts were not repugnant thought proper to fall sick in his turn and was healed in like manner by a gracious message from the queen the countess of essex was indefatigable in her applications to persons in power but with little avail all that was gained for the dejected prisoner was effected by the intercession of some of the queen's favourite ladies who obtained leave for his two sisters to come to court and solicit for him soon after the storm seemed to gather strength again a warrant was made out for the earl's committal to the tower and though it was not carried into force quote, the hopes of liberty grew cold about the middle of november lord montjoy received orders to prepare for ireland the appearance of the first part of a history in latin of the life and reign of henry the fourth by sir john hayward dedicated to the earl of essex was the unfortunate occasion of fresh offence to the queen the subject as containing the deposition of a lawful prince was in itself unpalatable but what gave the work in her jealous eyes a peculiar and sinister meaning was an expression addressed to the earl which may be thus rendered quote, you are great both in present judgment and future expectation end quote. Hayward was detained a considerable time in prison, and the Queen, from an idle suspicion that the piece was in fact the production of some more dangerous character, declared that she would have him racked to discover the secret. Quote, Nay, madam, answered Francis Bacon, he is a doctor. Never rack his person, but rack his style. Let him have pen, ink, and paper, and help of books, and be enjoined to continue the story where it breaketh off. And I will undertake, by collating the styles, to judge whether he were the author or no. End quote and thus her mind was diverted from this atrocious purpose. End of section 45